Two summers ago, I needed to change tires on my car. It had lasted six years. That's pretty good for a set of tires. Winter was coming, and so I got a new pair of tires, and winter came, and in cold weather, pressure in tires tend to diminish. And either I didn't think about it, or I was lazy, and I didn't bring the pressure up to where it ought to be. And the next time I took it in to have it uh, rotated, I came out, and as I drove, I was hearing this whoop, 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 whoop sound. Now the tire, you know, you can get tires for 40, 50, 80,000 mile warranties, uh, quiet ride, all these other kind of promises, but the real test is when the rubber hits the road, right? What tires you've got on and what you've done to them. Now when you slap on a new pair of tires, you don't just slap them on and go, go driving. You've got to have them mounted according to specs, you've got to have the right size, um, you've got to inflate to the right pressure, you've got to get them balanced, you've got to get the car aligned, and if you do all that, then, theoretically, they will live up to their expectation. Well, like I say, a year ago, I was a little lazy, I didn't get the pressure up, and ended up having that whoop-whoop sound, and I went back, so what, it wasn't making this one, what did you do? Uh, no, we found some cupping taking place on the tire, so it was uneven wear from lower pressure. So now I have to deal with the noisy consequences of my laziness. Well, the same is kind of true in our lives in Christ. This new life we've been talking about comes not just with a warranty, it comes with a guarantee, a guarantee of eternal life, and a guarantee of victory over sin and over, um, over death. But there are some requirements for it to achieve its full expectation, you know, when the rubber hits the road in our life. One is to be well-inflated, if you will, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And with His help to make sure our lives are balanced and aligned with God's Word. And then, and only then, will our lives be glorifying to the Father to their full potential. Colossians chapter 3 is the proverbial where the rubber hits the road chapter in the book of Colossians. When theology and head knowledge become real and affect our daily life. Where our lives will be a joyful noise to the Lord well, rather than a whoop, 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 whoop sound. Where our lives will be a sweet fragrance lift to the Lord rather than a stench in his nostrils. There's a lot of effort needed on our part. I don't think a lot of Christians really understand that. Effort not for salvation, because we all know, and we've said it, we've preached it, we believe it, salvation is not by works. But in keeping ourselves inflated, in keeping ourselves aligned with the Word of God and God's will, 
we, there is a lot of work there because we do have this self, this outward self that we're still living in. Uh, we have to deal with that, those old habits, those old norms that we talked about uh, last week. The old norms that we're accustomed to, we have to train ourselves to be godly. And that's what Paul is helping us with here in Colossians chapter 3. He's actually dealing with what theologians refer to as sanctification. You all heard the word, that's part of our fourfold gospel. Becoming holy and separated to God. It is God's will, 1 Thessalonians 4, that you should be sanctified. God's will for us is that between our justification and our glorification, we be sanctified. We are justified as salvation when Christ made us just before God by the blood of Christ who forgave us for our sin. And our glorification will be when Christ returns and takes us with him in our glorified bodies. But between those two events, it is God's will for us to live a sanctified life. Be holy, as Ben read earlier this morning, because I am holy. Now, sanctification is a topic that doesn't really get talked about a lot. I think it often makes us uncomfortable because perhaps we don't really understand it, or perhaps because if we really did understand it, we might have to make some major changes in our life, and that's just a little bit scary. But in this whole chapter, Paul is dealing with sanctification. And as I mentioned, sanctification is to be separated, separated from sin to God, separated from sin to holiness. We are to be more and more like Christ. And as we learned last week, we, uh, we are to live lives that essentially are heavenly lives rather than earthly lives. So let me read the first 10 verses. We dealt with the first four verses last week, but let me read the first 10 verses of Colossians 3 to set our minds to where we're going here this morning. Beginning with verse 1, Therefore, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Paul is very logical in his presentation here. He teaches us all about the supremacy and all sufficiency of Christ in the first two chapters. And the fact that our old nature has been put to death at the cross has been put off. And we've been raised with Christ with a new nature, with his nature. That's his premise. First two chapters, his premise. Therefore, he says, set your hearts and minds on things above. That's where we are to be living so we can be effective here. Then with that concept understood, everything that we talked about last week, 
Paul gives a second therefore in verse 5, which is the flip side of the coin. If we are continuing to set our minds and our hearts on things above, it follows therefore that you will put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Because of who Christ is and because of what Christ has done for us and because of our new identity, we need to live consistently with that identity. This is who we now are, and it sets a standard for how we are to live. This is where the proverbial rubber hits the road. In verse 5, Paul becomes very practical in how this should work out in our everyday life and what we've got to be watching for. That's where that second therefore comes in. If we're going to live the risen life, if we're going to leave the world to reach the world, we're going to have to deal with what remains on earth of our sinfulness, the old norm that we are training ourselves out of in order to be godly, and that requires some very dramatic and consistent and strong practical action. Look at verse 5. Therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Very literally, the Greek says, put to death the members of your earthly body. That's pretty drastic. But that's consistent with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 when he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Now, I have seen ceremonies take place in churches where they have a special foot washing ceremony. Uh, It can be very effective. Uh, This morning, I brought my machete from Africa. And after the service, we're going to try something new. We're going to take the chopping block, we're going to take it out here in front of the, front of the door, and as we go off, whatever member, part of your body has been causing you to sin, sharp, I got a band-aid on my thumb. <laughs> We've got a list. Anybody wants to start signing up now? Who's going to be the first volunteer? Not a hand. Wow. (laughs) Right after me. (laughs) Obviously, we're not going to be doing that, so don't worry about this machete here. Jesus wasn't expecting that to be taken literally, but what he is saying is that we need to deal drastically with anything that causes our hand to act in a sinful way or our eyes to see a sinful way. Hand-cutting, eye-gouging ceremony. Take care of it. But that's how serious God is here. And that's what Paul is saying here. When, we, when he's talking about killing or putting to death, he's talking about killing in a spiritual sense here. In Romans chapter 8, verse 13, he says, If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. You will live that victorious life. We've got to put that to death. 
If we're going to live this Christian life to its full potential in victory, we have to train ourselves to be godly, as Paul said in Timothy, by first setting our hearts and minds on heavenly things, the things above, and at the same time, putting to death the extremes of the desires that our bodies still have. You see, we have a new inside. That's a new nature. We have the new inside, but we've got this old outside still that we're dealing with. We have a new eternal Christ-like nature, and these old bodies have not yet been glorified. That's going to happen, but it has not been glorified yet. They still have desires, fleshly desires. And we mentioned a few weeks ago, desires in and themselves are not evil. God has given desires. But it's when they are given license, when they are given permission to act out in any way they want to, that's when they have, that's when we have anarchy within ourselves and within society. We're seeing that being played out in our own country. Sinful desires run amok. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And listen, offer every part of your hand. If your hand was a thing that was causing you to sin, that, that, that was an instrument of evil, offer that hand now to God. Say, God, I want you to use this hand. I want you to use this, this eye. Offer every part of your body to him as an instrument of righteousness. And here in Colossians, Paul wants to help us with that. And this is critical. God has given us a responsibility, and he empowers us then to carry it out. But we have to take that responsibility, and then he will come alongside. He always said, I will be with you. It's always a promise. And I think sometimes we either just try to ignore sin or we've kind of got a defeatist, fatalistic kind of attitude. Say, well, I'll just try harder next time. Paul says we're not just to ignore sin or just to try harder next time. We need to take an active role in killing it. We are to be considering the members of our earthly body as dead. In order for us to wrap our minds around this, Paul gives us two lists in these next verses that we need to be dealing with. Now, what's interesting here is that they're not just lists of sins. It comes across as that as you're reading if you're not thinking about it too much. And they're listed in a very specific order for a specific reason. And these lists are interesting. The first list deals with perverted love. The second list de deals with perverted hate. The first list deals with what you do. The second list deals with what you say. The first list is personal. The second is social. The first list is how you feel. The second list is how you talk. So these are two very important lists that act as an instruction for us, not as an exhaustive list of sins. Well, I didn't do that. I've done this, but Paul didn't say anything about that. Paul actually gives a lot of lists of sin in his letters. None of them are intended to be exhaustive. Some of them are just samples of characteristic sins. And that's what we've got here, but it's more. Because built into these two lists is, as one commentary put, puts it, a certain pathology 
that will help us greatly in the putting to death of our sin. Now, pathology is a medical specialty concerned with the determining causes of disease. So that's what the commentator was referring to. So let's look at verse, the first list in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, you could say passion, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now notice the sequence. It starts with the evil action, sexual immorality. That's the deed. And it ends with idolatry. So it flows from the action down to the motive. That would be the pathology that we're going to see here. Paul is determining the cause of the action. It flows from the evil action of sexual immorality down to impurity, to passion, to lust, to evil desire, to greed, and down to idolatry. So let's open, open that up just a little bit here this morning. The word sexual immorality basically refers to any unlawful sexual act. Any unlawful sexual act according to God. And that definition is actually very simple. There is only one lawful sexual act, and that is a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman who are married. That's it. It's supposed to be a wonderful and a beautiful thing. God created that to be wonderful and beautiful. So anything other than that, in God's eyes, is unlawful and fall into the category of sexual immorality. But people, including a lot of Christians and many churches, have long since begun to ignore that. We live in a world where virtually any sexual act between any people and any gender is not only to be accepted, but is basically to be hailed as an act of personal identity, reality, and authenticity, and it should be praised. God says the only acceptable act Sexual act is between a man and a woman who are married. Now, this behavior springs from the next word in the list, is impurity. Impurity simply means uncleanness. Jesus' words in Mark chapter 7 help clarify this for us. In verse 20, Mark 7, 20, Jesus says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him or them. So when you see the defiling behavior, the act, it's coming from something inside the person. He goes on in verse 21 saying, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils, he says, come from inside and defile a person. Sexual immorality in behavior is a result of sexually sinful thoughts. If you control your mind... You control your actions. And where are our minds and hearts supposed to be? On heavenly things, on things above where Christ is, not on earthly things, on things that God desires, not on what we desire. Now remember, Paul is writing this to people who essentially had come to Christ out of a very pagan world. And an utterly pagan world in which all kinds of immorality was acceptable. Having concubines was acceptable. Having women for no other purpose than sexual fulfillment was fully acceptable. 
Pedophilia was acceptable. Homosexuality was acceptable. Relationships before and outside of marriage with virtually anyone was acceptable in the ancient pagan world. And in fact, much of it was part of their religious system. There were temple prostitutes associated with worship, the false worship, to accommodate these freedoms. Okay, this is religious. I can do this. So Paul is saying something to the pagan world that is frankly stunning. Our culture today has regained that infamous reputation that anything goes and it's all good. And we've gone back to that pagan culture. Forty years ago, I was in seminary. My wife was working in Boston. And she was talking with a co-worker friend of hers. And uh, in the process of talking... Her friend asked, asked Nancy, uh, has your husband ever cheated on you? And when she says, no, never, the co-worker was astonished, actually shocked to the point of not believing her. In fact, she said to my mother, your husband has to be lying. Everybody does it. Folks, the only acceptable sexual behavior at all is between a man and woman who are married. And if we don't want to fall into immorality, then we have to make sure we don't have those impure thoughts. Because if we cultivate those impure thoughts, if we purposely put ourselves in a position position to expose ourselves to that kind of thing, to the things that produce those impure thoughts, we're playing with fire. So we go from the immoral behavior back to what causes that, which is the impure thinking. And then the next word in the list is lust or passion. In, In the scenario that Paul is talking about, he actually uses the term for an inordinate affection. That's the word lust. Passion gone wrong. Passion gone to the extreme. This passion is describing for us something behind the impure thoughts. Passion is some... I don't know, kind of rumbling emotion deep within our nature. It's almost a passive thing lying latent within us. Kind of a deep-seated fire that can easily be fanned into flame. Now, don't misunderstand me here. Passion is not innately evil or wrong. God created passion. Place that in us. He wants to have passion for him. He wants us to have passion for our wives, for our husbands. It's what's behind that passion, what fans it into flame, that determines whether it's good or evil. Well, where does this lust or passion bubble up from? Well, Paul digs a little bit deeper in his list. Down to the next level, he says it comes from evil desire. We are susceptible to this passion because built into our fallen flesh, which is not yet, which has not yet been glorified, is this evil desire. John calls it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. What then activates the evil desire? What inflames that passion that leads to impure thoughts and leads to immoral uh, behavior? The next word is greed. Greed, how does that work in? Well, that's getting us very close to the bottom there. Greed, it's some, some of our, your translations may say covetousness, same thing. 
It's interesting to note that greed or covetousness is the last sin that is listed in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not be greedy. And it's a basic motive of all sin. It's what's behind all the others. It was what was behind Satan's fall. He was greedy. He coveted God's position. It's that desire for what isn't ours. It's the desire for what is forbidden. The desire for what is against God's will. The desire for something we have no right to, uh, to have and we're not entitled to. It's, in essence, it is the absence of contentment. In fact, it is actually the opposite of contentment. The Greek defined it as the insatiable desire that can never be satisfied, to want what you don't have. They actually said to satisfy that in the human heart is like trying to fill a bowl with no bottom. When greed is directed toward money, it ends in stealing. When it's directed towards fame, it ends in boasting. When it's directed towards worldly success, it ends up in selfish ambition. When it's directed towards power, it ends up in exploitation, intimidation, tyranny. And when directed toward a physical relationship with someone, it ends up in sexual sin. It is a desire to have what you don't have. It's a lack of contentment. It is covetousness. Every sin starts with this. The reason we do any sin is because we have decided that we will do what we have no right to do. Decision we make. We will take what we have no right to take. And Jesus went so far as to say that even the longing for, there is sin. Anyone who looks at a woman, he says in Matthew 5, lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Greed. Not quite yet at the bottom of his list. There's one more step. Paul says, let's call it for what it is. It's idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, of course, worshiping someone or something other than the true God, right? Simple definition. What's at the top of the list of the Ten Commandments? You will have no other God before me. So idolatry is the root of all sin. It's when we stop worshiping God and we decide we're going to worship ourselves. We become the idol. It's the opposite of seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Instead of seeking what is righteous and what is the will of God, we seek what we want. That's idolatry and we have replaced God. So this is how the pathology of sin works. We worship ourselves, which is idolatry, so we become greedy for what we have no right to. That's when what might have been a normal desire then turns into an evil desire, which then inflames our passion and lust, which creates impure thoughts, which then produces a sinful behavior. So all starts with setting our hearts and minds on ourselves. That's why Paul started this chapter in verse 1 and 2. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And if we do that, that's what his whole premise was about. If we do that, we are truly worshiping God and we are seeking first his kingdom and we're seeking his righteousness. And all this other stuff that Paul's talking about, this list of stuff that Paul is talking about, we shouldn't have to worry about at all if our mind and hearts are focused where they ought to be. 
because we'll no longer be worshiping ourselves. You see, the ability to live the Christian life is directly related to what we think about God and what we think about ourselves. The world wants to build ourselves up, right? Be all that you can be. Be proud of yourselves. Do it your way. But to really be lifted up, we need to come to the end of ourselves, realizing that in and of ourselves, we are worthless and we are lost. We need to have that attitude of David in Psalm 51, verse 17, where he says, My sacrifice, O God, is what? A broken heart. He says, A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Isaiah 66, verse 2, the ones I look on with favor, God says, are those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. If we are consumed with the glory of God, if we are consumed with the truth of Christ, if the word concerning Christ dwells in us richly, if our theology of God is deep and true, we are then a true worshiper and sin is dealt with at the very foundational level. And we are not going to be idol worshipers who put ourselves in place of God. So how serious is it to kill sin? Verse 6, look at it. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. That's pretty serious. The kind of things that we're talking about here, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, idolatry, are the sins that damn people to hell forever. By choosing self, one is rejecting God. And that's what John 3.18 is all about. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, whoever rejects Christ, whoever rejects God, stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Paul is saying, if you find yourself falling into this trap of me first, my way, I want, kill it. Kill it. These are the kind of things that God hates and upon which he pours out his wrath. Don't get sucked back into doing that again. Guard your hearts, guard your minds, continue to set them where they belong. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, he says in verse 7. Why would you go back, he's asking. Why? That was part of your old nature when you couldn't help yourself. Because the old nature was was controlled by those evil desires and by sin. But that, that nature's been put off. It's gone and replaced by a new nature which no longer is controlled by sin. Now it's a choice that you're actually making to sin. It's no longer I can't help it. That's part of my sinful nature. Now you're making a choice to sin because now you can help it. That's what some of you were, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. But you were washed, you were sanctified. He said, you're not that anymore. Step away from that behavior and get your hearts and minds back on things above. So this first list that Paul gives us refers to perverted love. Rather than loving God, people love themselves. Paul says, stop it. Just stop it. Get get rid of yourself. Get your eyes back on God. The second list we find in verses 8 and 9, and this deals with perverted hate. Now, there are some things we ought to hate. All sin, 
all unrighteousness, everything that offends God. But here Paul is bringing it down to earth, and this list deals with a kind of hate that is directed towards people. But now he says, you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. And in this list, he kind of flips the order. In the first list, he starts with the act and moves towards the motive. In this list, he starts with a motive and moves towards the resulting act. The motive here is anger that develops into rage, that releases malice, that turns into slander and filthy and abusive speech and ultimately to lying. Again, Paul is saying, just stop it. Rid yourself of this. It's a verb used to throw off dirty clothes. Paul is saying you need to lay aside that old lifestyle. I get it, he says. You were that way. I I understand that. And some of those old habits are still there, but things are changed. That was the old norm. You've got a new norm now. Paul's not talking about what we do here, but rather what we say in this particular list. James has some very strong words about what the unsanctified tongue can look like. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it itself is set on fire by hell. Those are strong words. How is that possible? Paul traces the motive back to anger. The word for anger that Paul uses refers to a deep down smoldering hostility. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not let the devil get a foothold. Because of it, basically. Don't allow that selfishness, don't allow that self-worship spark your emotions. Don't allow that anger to smolder to the point of bursting forth in a wildfire that Satan can then get a hold of and destroy you and destroy those that are around you. You see, that anger is also a product of self-worship. Somebody offended me. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. I decided to be offended because I'm far more important. Paul is saying that deep down, smoldering anger is idolatry. You're, You're back to worshiping yourself, not God. It then bursts forth in rage. The Greek word is thumos. We get our thermos from that, keeping things hot. That's when the anger bursts forth with sudden fury. Deep-seated anger explodes in rage and leads to malice. That's a general term for moral evil. So anger and rage develop an evilness from within, which then leads to slander. This is actually a word for blasphemy. We usually talk about God's name not being blasphemed, but it's also used towards people as well. It's a defaming of people. It's a slandering of people. There is an intent to destroy This has become so commonplace in our society today. I've never in my lifetime heard more slander going on than now. People are intent on literally destroying other people's lives to further their own agenda. Selfishness, idolatry, worship of self. Slander then produces abusive and filthy language, words used to hurt, to demean, to destroy. Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk, any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, 
that it may be that it may benefit those who listen. He goes on in verse 31, get rid of bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. It's all part of the old nature. It's all part of the old nature. We need to fight against it with all of our strength and the power of the Holy Spirit who empowers us. So what's the answer? What should we be doing? Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave us. That's the outworking of the new nature, the outpouring of the eternal life that is within us. We should be full of forgiveness, not constantly indicting others, thinking the worst of people or thinking the worst of their motives. This is unacceptable, abusive, obscene, blasphemous language that blasphemes other people. Why would we think for a minute that the Lord would be pleased with that, no matter what we think justifies it? If we find that there is within us a deep-seated anger smoldering in our hearts, we need to take that to the Lord. We need to deal with that before it bursts into rage, and then into malice and slander and abusive and destructive language. Then Paul says there in verse 9, do not lie to each other. Did you know that lies are protectors of self-worship? Ever thought about that? We'll say whatever we need to say to express our anger or our self-worship. Lying is a horrible thing. It started with Satan. He's a father of lies. Satan lied in deceiving Eve. Adam and Eve lied to God, attempting to evade responsibility. Cain lied to God about his brother. Abraham lied to Sarah. Sarah lied to the angels. Sarah also lied to the king of Gerar. Isaac lied, denying Rebekah was his wife. Rebekah lied in the conspiracy against Esau. We're not even out of Genesis yet. Paul is horrified that we would be so idolatrous as to live with smoldering anger that unleashes itself on people and then justifies itself and even leads to lies to fulfill our agenda. Christians are often dubiously redefining it as righteous indignation. When in reality, I would say that 90, even 95% of the time, it is not righteous indignation, it is selfish idolatry. Because it it becomes all about me, and I lie to myself to justify myself, and then I lie to others to justify myself, and then allow myself to express my anger. I'm being righteous. Paul says, stop it. Stop it. Just stop it. Why? Paul says, you have taken off, verse 9 and 10, you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You're different. You're changed which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator, becoming more Christ-like. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, not on self. Focus on Christ. Focus on his word. And while you're doing that, make sure you deal with all those old desires left over of the flesh that keep cropping up. But as they crop up, put them to death. Kill them. Because they no longer have control over you. Take them captive and make them obedient to Christ. You see, if we are truly God worshipers and Christ worshipers, the battle's won. The battle is won. The more we set our hearts and minds on things above, the more we'll know that God 
Uh, we'll know about God, and the more we'll know about Christ, and the more we'll love God, and the more we'll love Christ, and then the more we're going to submit gladly to God, and the more we will love one another. Isn't that interesting? Love God and love one another. Aren't those the two greatest commands in, in Scripture? We live in the heavenlies, yes, but we have to be realistic about the flesh within which we are living. And Paul calls us to do both. Focus on the heavenly. When the fleshly desires crop up, kill them. Remember that little course about joy that I mentioned a while back? Jesus and others and you. What a wonderful way to spell joy. J is for Jesus, for he takes first place. O is for others. You meet face to face. Y is for you in whatever you do. Put yourself last and spell joy. Father, this morning we thank you that you have given us a new life. We can't wrap our minds completely around that. Such a massive, massive subject and the work that was accomplished, but Father, I thank you that you have given to us what you have given to us, and we just have to realize and live in that truth and count ourselves in that truth. We don't have that sinful nature. We have the new nature of Christ. Are there struggles? Are there battles? Yes, but we have victory over them. Christ gave us that victory as well. We can put them aside, and we can live a holy life. We can be living a sanctified life and growing in that sanctification day by day. And I pray that you would open our minds to understand how we can do that every single day. And when, when we do, when, when, when one of those uh, sinful desires begin cropping up, when we get angry about something, if our patience is short and, and we get impatient about something, I pray that your Holy Spirit would touch us and say, there, that's the one. Kill it. Kill it. Quick. I pray that we will be obedient to kill it in the name of Jesus and ask you to fill that area, that emotion, with joy and love and grace. Father, we praise you. Thank you for the work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.